Isaiah chapter 43, and if you are physically able tonight, would you stand with me as we read a portion of God's Word? Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, as we take some time to get into your word tonight and look at what we would say to those that base their existence on the scripture we just read, or at least their name and their title, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to answer and to give a defense for the things that we believe. Lord, I thank you so much for the precious men and women that you brought to this place tonight. I pray that you would enrich them and bless them and be with them. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Over the past few weeks, we have started this 20-question series By looking at what do we say to certain individuals we come across in our lives. Now next week we'll begin the countdown of the questions that uh, you and uh, Calvary Chapel Paris have emailed in to me and we'll start going through a list. But this first series, I just wanted to lay a foundation. We looked at how in in 1 Peter, he he tells us to be ready to give a defense and an apology for the things that we believe, a reasonable explanation. And certainly there will be those that come to us that deny everything that we believe and and hold dear. And we want to know what to say to them. We want to know what to say to an evolutionist. To be able to point out a few problems with the evolutionary theory because, again, many will pass it off as fact. Like there is no issues with it at all. But, friends, as we looked at and saw, the chances that life would originate from non-life is 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. And that is such a small number, it's impossible to illustrate. It's absurd. But because most evolutionists don't have this concept of God at all in their minds, we have to address a second question together. And that is, what do I say to an atheist? Because if there is no option of God, of course we'll believe the 1 in 10 chance to the 40,000th power because there is no other alternative and we're here, so it had to have happened. But in reality, there is a God. So what do we say to someone who doesn't believe that there's a God? How do we break through? Well, what do we look for? What would we look for? What would we be able to see to show someone there is a God? We'd number one look for signs of design. We looked at that. We looked at the fact that a watch, if it exploded in a watch shop, no one would believe that an explosion in a watch shop would produce a watch, but that's exactly what they believe for the wrist that it sits on. The evidence of design is all around us, the the evidence of the universe, the sign of the universe. The universe has either always existed, and again, as we've said over and over again, there's, there's hardly a scientist left on the face of the earth that believes that is true, or, or it created itself, that in itself is absurd, or guess what? Option three, it was created. Again, it's a sign there is something out there greater than you and me. The fact that we have morality and logic and order, all of these things point to not just the fact that there is a God, but it shows us what type of God exists. One who is intelligent, one who is powerful, and yet one who at the same time is loving and true and righteous and good. And friends, there's only one God who fits all of those descriptions, and it's the God of the Bible. 
Now, others will say, okay, I, I hear you on that. There's got to be someone out there greater than ourselves. But, but what about the God of, of the Muslims or the God of the Hindus or, or all these other things called God? What makes your God better than all these other gods? What makes your truth better than my truth? All religions basically teach the same thing. And for someone who thinks like that, we had to ask the question, what do I say to a relativist? And again, a relativist is not your uncle. That's, not a rel- that's a relative. A relativist is one who believes there is no absolute truth, that all religions basically teach the same thing. And we looked how to deal with them, that if they believe that, that there is no absolute truth, they believe that absolutely, guess what? Then they defeat their own, their own theory, their own thinking. If they hold to at least one absolute truth, there are absolutes. You see, there are absolutes, there are truths that are true for every generation and at every time. And Jesus shared with us those those truths when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There are not many roads to God. There is one Savior of which we have to do. Well, some twist that idea of who the Savior is. And so last week we looked at what do I say to a Mormon? You know, you probably won't get through life without a time or two having a knock come at the door. And as you open up the door, there's Elder Jim and Elder Bob. And they're wanting to share with you about another testament of Jesus Christ. So what do you say? Well, to protect yourself, you need to understand that they use similar words that you do as a Christian. They have different meanings. They have a different view of God. We believe in one God that exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe in multiple gods. They believe God and Jesus are separate entities, separate gods. They have a different view on Jesus. They believe he is a God, the creator of the, 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 we believe he is God, creator of the world. They believe Jesus is a created being, one of God's many, many children that he had in heaven with one of his many, many celestial wives. They believe that the brother of of, uh, Jesus is Satan. So it's a very different view than you and I have of Jesus. They have a different view of man. We believe man is a sinner who needs to repent and be saved by God. And if we do, we're going to live in heaven with him one day. Mormons believe that as a man is, God once was, and as God is, man will someday be. In other words, they believe you and I get to become a God, a God ourselves. Again, a different view than we have of man. They have a different view of salvation. We believe you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. They believe you're saved by the work of Jesus and, now that's the problem, that word and, and by the following the teachings and the dictates of the Mormon church. Friends, it's good to know these things but when they're at your door. But again, as I said last week, it's ineffective just to blast them with what you know. Just to blast them. You'll run into them. I I was at dinner with my family at Islands last night, and there they were with their little badges. And and I was was with my daughter, and and she says, what are those, those, why do they have those name tags on? Like, oh, those are uh, elders in the the Church of Jesus Christ of of Latter-day Saints. What are those? Mormons. And she says, Dad. Didn't you, didn't you just do a study on that? Yes. Get him, Dad. Get him. Get him, Dad. Get him. And, I, you know, again, I know that's, that's, that's sometimes the, the temptation. It's like, oh, are you enjoying your hula burger? Well, great. What about this? What about that DNA evidence? Blah, blah, blah. Bam, 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 bam. I mean, we can do that, and you will very, very rarely see any fruit. So we talked last week about inviting them in, 
listening to what they have to say, then asking them three or four questions that will challenge them of what they've been taught. And we listed some of those last week. If you missed last week, it should be online already. You can get a CD of it. But tonight we are going to move on to our fifth and final installment of what do I say to people I, I meet on a regular basis who are different than what I believe and what I hold to as we look at what do I say to a Jehovah, Jehovah's Witness? What do we say to a Jehovah's Witness? Like last week, if you're taking notes tonight, we're going to cover three things. Number one, a brief history of the Jehovah's Witness. Secondly, what they believe versus what the Bible teaches. And thirdly, how to share Christ with a Jehovah's Witness. So look at these one at a time. First, just a brief history so we all know where they came from and where they're going. The story of the Jehovah's Witness go back to Charles Taze Russell, a man that was born in 1852 and as a teenager... Russell rejected the teachings of his congregational church, especially he just did not like the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of the Trinity, and the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. Those were problems, he had serious problems with those three teachings. So he joined up with the Adventist church, and if you don't know who they are, well, a couple weeks from now we'll be asking the question, does a New Testament believer have to keep the Sabbath? And we'll take a look at the uh, Seventh-day Adventist church for a few minutes on that night. But he joined up with them, and by age 18, Charles Taze Russell had formed his own Bible study group and developed his own theology, emphasizing the second coming of Jesus Christ, which the Adventists taught was going to happen in the year 1874. They were not right, in case you were wondering. When Jesus did not return in 1874, Charles Taze Russell adopted the Adventist view that Jesus came spiritual in an invisible way in 1874. By 1879, Russell parted company with the Adventists and launched his own magazine, which you know as now the Watchtower. In 1912, Russell was found a perjurer under oath because he declared that he could read Greek and, Greek and Hebrew letters, but under examination, he could not identify even one letter of the Greek alphabet or the Hebrew alph- alphabet. Nonetheless, he wrote a six-book series called Studies in the Scripture, which he described as practically the Bible itself. Russell set a new date for Jesus to return, and that was 1914. But as he came to his death in 1916, Charles Taze Russell died a failed watchtower prophet, and friends, he would not be the last. In 1917, Joseph Rutherford, who had served the legal counsel to the watchtower, became his new president. And he set 1925 as the new date for Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ. He was also wrong, if you're taking notes tonight and you didn't realize that. When that date came and went back, he backed from his predictions and he said, no, no, listen, you guys misunderstood what I had to say. I don't know how you misunderstand that, but it was Rutherford who brought in the door-to-door campaign of which the Jehovah's Witness are now famous. He also came with the idea that only 144,000 people were going to heaven. This door-to-door campaign was focused on this message. You got to get in. Only 144 are going to be saved, 144,000. But by the year 1930, Jehovah's Witnesses were facing a problem. They were getting close to that number of 144,000 in their membership. So Rutherford declared everyone who would become a Jehovah's Witness before 1935, they would get to go to heaven. And everyone who became a Jehovah's Witness after 1935 would live in paradise on earth after the battle of Armageddon. So Rutherford then died in 1942. And the next president of the Jehovah's Witnesses was a man by the name of Nathan Knorr. He set a nude and absolute final date for the return of Jesus Christ. We got it right one more time, and that would be 1975. That's when he said Jesus was coming back. Gave him a lot of time, 30 plus years. They could multiply and wait for the return of the Lord. When 1975 came and went, Nathan Nord joined Russell and Rutherford as false prophets. 
But despite this false prophecy of 1975 and huge defections after that, in 1977, when Noor died, there were still over 2 million members of the Jehovah's Witness. Today, there are 6 million Jehovah Witnesses worldwide, and they spend 1.2 billion hours collectively going door to door preaching their gospel. So we understand why it's important that we know with 6 million of them out there going door to door, spending 1.2 billion hours trying to deceive, it's important for us to know what to say to a Jehovah's Witness. What does a Jehovah's Witness believe and how does it compare with the Bible? There are many, many, many differences between what, a, what the Bible teaches and what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. And we could take, take each of those and develop a whole study of them, but that's not what the point of this series is to do. The point of this series is to take one night and cover one topic, kind of rapid fire, so you can be prepared on a large range of subjects. There are many doctrines and differences between what the Bible teaches and what the Jehovah's Witness believe, but I want to key in on just five doctrines. And I want to key in on these five, not just because they're, they're differences, but so many of the cults use these false understandings of what the Bible says in these five specific areas. Walter Martin, who uh, wrote and spoke extensively to combat the false teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses, he, he said the average Jehovah's Witness can cause the average Christian untold trouble by sprinkling the conversation with Greek and Hebrew terms while repeating scripture out of context. He goes on to say in his book, Kingdom of the Cults, every Christian needs to be absolutely sure of what the Bible teaches regarding the Trinity, Jesus' deity, the Holy Spirit, salvation by grace, and hell if you hope to answer, much less witness to the Jehovah's Witness who come to your door. So it's important for you and I to be able to know what we believe on these five major topics. The Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit, salvation by grace, and the subject of hell. Because you never know, whether it's a Jehovah's Witness or not, you never know when you're going to get challenged on these five fundamental Bible truths. You never know. A few weeks ago, two just the sweetest looking older ladies came up to me after services that I was having in, in Paris, Texas. And these two ladies walked up to me and they said, Pastor Jason, we want to sit down with you and learn more about the Bible. We want to ask you some Bible questions. And I said, well, I would love to sit down with you and answer for you some Bible questions. I just wanted to pat them on the head. They were so cute. I would love to sit down and talk with you, and, but the reality is I'm traveling back and forth now, and the next appointment I have will be next week after church, or, or, or I've got a team of assistant pastors. Most of them know way more than I do. You can sit down with them, talk with them, share with them, and they said, oh, but we just love you. We want to meet with you. And I thought, what sweet ladies. I mean... I am rather lovable. So, you know, I understand. And, you know, I, I was going to let them pinch me on the cheek. And I thought they'd bake me some cookies. And I was looking forward to this counseling session where I answered some Bible questions. Well, next week, that next week came. And I sat down with these two sweet older ladies with their Bibles covered in pink and lace and just ready to have a nice chat on a Sunday afternoon. And I prayed and then said, so... 
What's on your mind? And the older of the two ladies almost started yelling at me. The Trinity is a made-up doctrine. It's never taught in the Bible. It was never taught by the apostles. It was made up by Constantine to bring paganism into the church. Jesus isn't God. He never claimed to be God. The apostles never said he was God. And by the way, neither is that person you call the Holy Spirit. He's not God. God is not a three-headed monster. You're leading people astray by saying all they need to do is to believe in Jesus and they'll go to heaven. They will not. They will be annihilated after Armageddon and not be banished to some hell that you believe that is totally out of the character of God. To which I responded, did you have a question? I just, and where are the cookies? Where are the cookies? Come on. Oh, man. These were obviously not sweet, innocent ladies. These were Jehovah's Witnesses, who I must confess were pretty brave to say, we, no, we don't want innocent. We want you. We want to talk with you. But they picked the wrong guy going through the wrong series. That's the problem. And so it was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. You see, this is classic Jehovah Witness doctrine. There's no trinity. Jesus is not God. Never claimed to be. No one, no one, no one in the Bible ever said that he was. The Holy Spirit is not God. Salvation is by works, not faith. And hell is a made-up place invented by the church to scare people. And again, you don't just hear this from Jehovah's Witnesses. You hear this from many people who come against the Scriptures. So I ask you, what would you say if you were challenged on these points? If you were told, hey, Jesus never claimed to be God. No one ever said he was. The Trinity is some made-up idea. Hell is just made up to scare people. What would you say? Well, I want to let you be a fly on the wall of that counseling session. And work through the answers to these these basic misunderstandings to things we should know and hold true as Bible-believing Christians. So let's take them one by one. What about the Trinity? What about the Trinity? What about the charge the Trinity is nowhere found in Scripture? Well, again, friends, that charge is completely unfounded. We're introduced to the concept of the Trinity in the first verse of the Bible. First verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You say, well, I don't see the Trinity in that verse. Well, friends, the name that, that, that God used for himself in, in that first verse, it, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word Elohim. And it's a word that speaks of God's singleness, but, but here's the catch. It's in a plural form. So there, even in the first verse of the Bible, is this single term for God that's in, in a plural state, in a plural form. And if you have a hard time understanding what that means, we see it worked out later in Genesis chapter 1 when God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Remember reading that verse as a new Christian? You're like all excited to read through the Bible and you're reading through Genesis 1 and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, I love this, I love this. Let us make man in our image. Huh? What does that mean? Why is there us and our? Who's up there? I don't understand it. I don't get it. Again, I thought God was one. He is. Well, then who is us? Again, it's a picture of the Trinity all the way back in Genesis 1. The Trinity is hinted at again in Isaiah chapter 6. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah 6, 8 says. Again, this idea, this plurality of the nature of God. In the New Testament, though it's hinted at the Old Testament, in the New Testament it's explained even more fully. 
There in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, for when he, speaking of Jesus, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We see the Trinity in play here. You've got God the Son being baptized. God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And God the Holy Spirit descending upon God the Son. Another passage to consider is 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Now, the Jehovah's Witness or someone that doesn't believe in the Trinity might say, well, scholars aren't even sure if that first John verse should be in the Bible. That's a whole study for another time. Then they'll say the verse you quoted in Matthew. That shows what, exactly what I'm saying. They're three separate people. God the Father, God the... They're, they're three. I mean, how can you alight upon yourself? How can you descend upon yourself? They're separate. And I say again, absolutely. That's the definition of the Trinity. They are three, yet one. There is a oneness in God, but they exist eternally in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this fact that they are distinct, as you see in Matthew 3, is seen elsewhere in the Scripture that they're also one. And we see that as we explore our other two problems Jehovah Witnesses have, the deity of Jesus Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit. You see, they are separate and distinct, but the Bible also speaks of the oneness they have together. Consider the deity of Jesus Christ. We believe God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are distinct, but the doctrine of the Trinity says that at the same time, somehow, they are one. Where is that in the Scripture? Well, as we go through, first of all, we see the deed of Jesus Christ described as we see the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament, having the same exact attributes as God the Father. Well, what do I mean? Isaiah 7.14, a good verse to get down. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called what? Emmanuel. Now, now Bible students, who is this passage talking about? Jesus, the Messiah. Well, he'll, he'll have the name Jesus in the New Testament. It's talking about who you and I would call God the Son. But what does Isaiah call him? His name shall be called Emmanuel. Do you remember what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. God with us. So Isaiah the prophet says, this Messiah that's coming, he's not just a religious leader. He's not just coming on the scene to teach you great things. He is going to be God with you. If that wasn't enough, we see it again in Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and God, get that? What? Everlasting Father. They're calling the Messiah, what? An everlasting father. Not just a good leader, not just a great teacher, but an everlasting father. They're given the same titles. Again, they have the same attributes. Consider Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90, verse 2 speaks about God being eternal. Now compare that with Micah 5.2, which is speaking about the Messiah or Jesus. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrapath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one that will be ruler in Israel, look at this, whose going forth are from old and from everlasting. 
God the Father is described as eternal in Psalm 90. And Jesus is described as eternal in Micah 5.2. And friends, it's not just the Old Testament. This idea that the apostles never taught that Jesus is God. They throw that out there. These ladies were so confident as they sat in my office. I dare you, in fact, they said, I dare you to show me where the apostles said Jesus was God. Well, you dare me, huh? Well, all righty then. What about the Apostle Thomas? Let's start with him. Let's start with him, the Apostle Thomas. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. This is John 20, verses 26 to 28. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with him, and Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, look in my hands, reach your hand here, put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. Oh, well, that's just one to start. Then how about Peter? Peter called Jesus God. Second Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a bondservant of the apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sounds like Peter's confused too. He seems to think Jesus is God also. That's because he is. What about Paul's words, the words of Paul? The apostle Paul called Jesus God, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2, verse 13 says. The apostle John called Jesus God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, of course, they'll stop you right there. Oh, no, 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 no. Look at my Bible, the New World Translation. It says that Jesus was a God. Friends, understand tonight unequivocally. There is no evidence at all that the word that is translated God, he was God, that you should insert an A into that translation. No evidence whatsoever. In fact, do some research into the way they translated the New World Translation and you will be blown away. The scholars that worked through and blessed us with that translation did not have a single recognized degree in Hebrew or Greek from any recognized source. Now, come on. <laughs> come on. You've, you're telling me you worked through the entire Greek and Hebrew Bible and you didn't have at least one guy working with you that maybe went to school to do that kind of thing? Then don't tell me that an A belongs in that verse. It does not. John called Jesus God. But Jesus never said he was God. Oh, contraire. Oh, contraire. John chapter 10, verse 30. John chapter 10. I and my Father are one. That's pretty clear. Oh, but what he meant was, you know, kind of like a man and his wife are one. It's a spiritual oneness, kind of a kinship together. Okay, John chapter 8, verses 57 and 58. Friends, it doesn't get any clearer than this. Jesus is having this banter back and forth with the Pharisees. And the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham. He was claiming to be greater than Abraham. And he obviously is. But they're questioning him on that. And Jesus said, Jesus said, look, it's up on the screen. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Friends, Jesus was claiming to be the voice of the burning bush. 
It, it doesn't get any more claiming to be God than to say, hey, hey, remember that phrase, I am? When Moses went and said, who, who, I got this, this bush is on fire in the middle of the wilderness, but, but what's your name? Who shall I say sent me? And the Lord says, you say, I am sent you. I am. This title that God gives to himself, I am. Listen, even if you don't get it, the Jews certainly got it because it says, then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. The Jews understood exactly what was going on. He was claiming to be God. So if Jesus is God and yet we know God is one, guess what that means? There's got to be a trinity. If God is one, we know that, we believe that. And yet at the same time, God the Father is God. God the Son is God, well, there has to be more to this God that is one. He's a trinity, he's a trinity as long as the Holy Spirit is God. And they say, oh, he's not. He is. The New Testament teaches that the Spirit is God, not just the essence of God or the Spirit of God, like the Jehovah's Witness would say. And we see that because oftentimes we'll see the Bible call the Holy Spirit God. Consider Acts chapter 5. But Peter said, I, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? God, now think that through for a second. In the first verse we read, he said, you lied to who? The Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, he says, you lied to God. Is Peter confused? Is the Bible contradicting itself? No. These guys are one and the same. The Holy Spirit is God. We also see an indication of that where the New Testament, think this through with me, the New Testament attributes things said by the Holy Spirit. But when you actually look up the quote from the Old Testament, it attributes it to God, who we would call God the Father. An example of that is in Acts chapter 28. In Acts chapter 28, it says, When they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet, our father, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. Paul says the Holy Spirit was right when he said this about you guys, when he classified you in this way. But if you go back to where the quote comes from in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, And I heard the voice of the... The Lord, it says. This Old Testament word for God, who we would consider God the Father. God said the phrase, whom shall I send, who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. You see, in Isaiah, it's God, eternal Elohim that's saying it. But the book of Acts attributes to the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not a contradiction. It's evidences that these two guys are one in the same. And we see another example that we don't have time to get into. You can look up on your own in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 through 17 and when you compare that with Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 see the same thing an Old Testament quote from God himself attributed to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament so we see that the Holy Spirit is God we see that Jesus is God we know God is God yet God we know is one so the only answer to these guys that are three but one is this concept we call the Trinity now listen, I don't fully suggest I understand the Trinity. It blows my mind to think that God can be both three and one because I can't. I know we use little illustrations. Well, you know, I'm a dad and I'm a son and I'm a pastor. 
That's cool, but you know, it's still one guy going around. I, I can't be, I can't, you see, I, I, we have limited concepts to help us understand, but this doctrine should just amaze you at the greatness and the goodness of God, and that's okay. I don't know about you, but I look in the heavens and I just see the stars. You see the sunsets that we're having out here as we're walking around in t-shirts where the rest of the country's frozen. Sorry, Paris, Texas, if you're watching tonight, but I got short sleeves on and I'm fine. Get the snow out of there before I come this weekend. Anyways, it's frozen. But we look at this. Where am I going with that? Oh, the sunsets. You watch these. And it's just like, the Lord is so amazing. He's so big. And it makes my heart just want to worship. I know some people, they've got to understand everything about God, but, but the reality is, I don't think you ever will. Oh, maybe when we get to heaven and we, we know him even as we are known, but right now, friends, we see through the glass dimly. And it's enough just to make me realize you are God and I am not, so now it's time just to worship you. Man. The doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit, salvation by grace. In order to find good standing in God's sight in the Watchtower Society, it teaches that you must be baptized, active, member in their organization. According to the Watchtower Society, there's no salvation outside of the organization. Listen to this quote right out of one of their books. There will only be one organization, God's visible organization, that will survive the fast-approaching Great Tribulation. It is simply not true that all religions lead to the same goal. I agree. You must be part of the Jehovah's organization doing God's will in order to receive his blessings of everlasting life. That comes from their book, You Can Live Forever in Paradise on Earth. If you want to be sure that you will be saved at the Battle of Armageddon, the Watchtower teaches that you must be a faithful and active in what they call kingdom work. For them is the mainly their door-to-door ministry from You Can Live Forever in Paradise, page 250. Friends, that amounts to works-based salvation. Again, something the Bible clearly rejects. The Bible teaches that salvation cannot be earned or merited. Over and over again, the Bible teaches that salvation is a free gift to those who believe. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans 3.28, if we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, the Bible teaches something very different than a works-based salvation. And that's certainly true of the final belief system that they have. They believe there is no hell. What about hell? Hell was one of the doctrines that bothered the originator of the Jehovah's Witness, Charles Taze Russell. How could a loving God send someone to hell? Friends, we're going to take a whole Wednesday night and deal with that subject by itself. But just because it might be hard for us to understand, to say that hell is not talked about in the Bible is completely false. In fact, Jesus taught more on the subject of hell than he did on the subject of heaven. The watchtower teaches that Jehovah will annihilate the wicked and they will simply cease to exist. However, the Bible teaches that there will be endless punishment of the wicked. Consider these passages, one from Revelation chapter 19. This passage, because sometimes we just drop you in a verse, it's like you've been dropped in the jungle, what's going on? This happens right after the second coming of Jesus Christ. You have the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation period, and then after that seven-year tribulation period, Jesus comes again back to the earth, sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, every eye will see him, and what will he do? Revelation 19, 20. 
The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of, of fire, burning with brimstone. So, Jesus comes back, sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, he takes the beast, or what we would call Antichrist, and his prophet, his little right-hand man, and he throws them both into the lake of fire. We're clear on that? Revelation 19, verse 20. Okay, now consider this next passage. This next passage comes from Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Now this happens after the millennium. Again, the timeline. Jesus is coming for his church. When is that going to happen? August. No, no, no. That's, no. That's what these guys do. We don't do that. He's coming soon. So he's coming soon for his church. Then, then there will be a seven-year tribulation period. Then he's going to come back, you know, back to the earth, set us down on the Mount of Olives. He is going to put the Antichrist, he's going to put the false prophet into this lake of fire, and he's going to set up this wonderful time known as the millennium, this thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Now, after the millennium, he's going to release Satan for one last time. Oh, that's a question by itself. Why release Satan again? Oh, I'm so tempted to get, we don't have time. To give everybody else a chance. You gotta give them a choice, just like you had a choice. So Satan's released for one last final rebellion, and then this happens Revelation 20 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone. Notice, notice, where the beast, who's the Antichrist, and the false prophet are. Well, do you see that on the screen? Are. It's where they are, not where they used to be before they were annihilated, it's where they still are. A thousand years later. Remember, they were thrown in when Jesus came back, the second coming of Jesus Christ, before the millennium. Now, a thousand years later, they're still there. And it goes on. It says, they, they, not just the devil, but these three of them, the devil, the beast, the false prophet, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this place is the place where the unrighteous will spend eternity. Revelation 20, 15, anyone not found in the book of life will be cast into the same place, the lake of fire. Jesus said, he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into what? Everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus said the fire where the wicked are will be cast into everlasting fire. And then verse 46 of that same Matthew 25 passage, and these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. You see, just like our everlasting life is going to go on throughout eternity, so will be the punishment of the wicked. Revelation 14, 11 says of the unrighteous, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They will have no rest day or night. Friends, now listen, I understand that's a sobering thought. I don't like the idea of people spending eternity apart from God in a place called hell. That doesn't bless me, that idea. In fact, I was sharing with some of the pastors here. Paris, Texas has a lot of churches, a lot of churches. There's 110 churches for 20,000 isolated people. It's the average of about 40 you know, per, per, per church there. So anyways, I mean, it's, it's a very, very you know, well-churched town. And so where we're at, we, we, we got an old Walmart building and renovated it, and that's where our church is at. And, and then right next door is this really, really tiny church. And they've got a big marquee outside, though. It's about as big as the building. But anyways, they've got this big marquee outside. And we've started on a Sunday morning. We're doing, guess what? A series called 20 Questions. Maybe you heard about it. That's because I'm no fool, no siree. I want to live to be at least 33. So I'm not going to teach eight different things. I'm teaching the same series in Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel Paris. 
So as we're going through these 20 questions, and everybody in town knows, the, 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 the church next door puts up this giant billboard that says, there is only one question. Where will you spend eternity? And I have to, I'm driving out just going, are they, are they trying to say something to me? I don't know. Is that, is that, is that, and, 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 I, and I almost, I mean, you know, I almost want to go, obviously you're not listening online because I end by saying that's what, exactly what I say. It's good to know what to say to an evolutionist. It's good to know what to say to a relativist. relativist. It's good to know what to know what to say to an atheist or a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness, but there is only one question that counts in the end, right? What have you done with Jesus Christ? It bothers me that people are going to hell. But just because it bothers me, it doesn't make the truth any less a reality. So very quickly, how do we share Christ with a Jehovah's Witness? You see, again, most of our study tonight is for you. It's for you. So you will know what you believe and why. So when someone says to you, Jesus isn't God, the apostles never claimed that he was God, he never said he was God, you say, oh, you no, I know the answer to that one. Right here, right here, right here, and you'll have the scriptures. Go home, look them up, get them into your mind, make a cheat sheet in your Bible. That's what I used to do. That's that's great. Have it near you so you know what you believe and why. That's what most of the study is about. But but then when you when they come to you, when whether they're at your door, two sweet ladies, you know, assault you at church, whatever it is, what is say? What do you say to them? But listen, what did I say? I had no idea that slide was coming up. Good job. All right. Good job, Aaron. Awesome. All right. What do you say when they appear at your door? (gasps) Number one, just like with the Mormons, invite them in. Invite them in. Pray through that. If you're a new believer, probably not a great idea. If you're at home and don't have two hours, you're just a single lady home alone, maybe, maybe not a great idea. Unless they're two old ladies and you'll be okay, but... Invite them in. Listen to what they have to say. Let them go through their presentation. Don't interrupt. Just let them talk. I know this will be hard since you're so well equipped now after the study. <laughs> but just listen. Just listen. Then this is where we differ from the Mormons, okay? Then share your testimony. Share your testimony about how God saved you. What you used to be like and what happened. What a joy it is to fellowship with other believers and study the word. Share with them what God is doing in your life. And why this is key is this poses a huge problem for Jehovah Witnesses. Because they are taught that no one outside of their organization can be saved or find favor with God. And so you're sharing with them that God is working outside of their organization. And it will come to them as quite a shock. They're taught that all Christians are hypocrites. They're taught that all Christians don't have a real relationship with God. So you tell them about yours. Now again, I know it would be very tempting at this point to share everything you've learned about the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ in hell, but that can be very unproductive. They are trained to not question what they believe. They are trained to to see that you're going to try to deceive them. I mean, listen to some of their quotes from their own Watchtower magazine. Jehovah caused the Bible to be written in such a way that you need his human channel to understand it. Can you believe that? Can you imagine if Pastor Rob said that to this congregation on a Sunday morning? Welcome, Calvary Vista. Aren't you glad I'm here because you need me to understand the Bible? Most of you would run out, and rightfully so, because that's crazy. God's put his spirit inside you to speak to you. We're blessed that we have Pastor Rob to teach us and instruct us in the word, but you, you can read it on your own and learn some great things too. But think about what they're being told every day. No, you can't. 
You need us to understand, Orcus, this is my favorite. Avoid independent thinking. (laughs) Avoid independent thinking. Questioning the counsel is provided by God's visible organization. You see what you're up against? They're being trained to not think on their own. So what do you do? You help them begin to question this organization they've given their whole life to. You see, you can argue the deity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, and hell till you're blue in the face. And don't get me wrong. Obviously, I think you should know how to defend those positions. But the reality is the best thing to do is to start to chip away at this blind faith they have in the Watchtower Society. I would use all the false prophecies. They have declared that Jesus come back, if you want to write these dates down, in 1874, 1914, 1915, 1918, 1925, one more try, 1975. And lucky for us, these have all been preserved in print. In 1908, the Watchtower Organization said, the battle of the great day of God Almighty, which will end in A.D. 1914, with the complete overthrow of the earth's present rulership, is already commenced. It's underway. You can look it up, and the reference is there. You can print it out. It's in their writings. In 1922, the Watchtower Organization said, the date, 1925, is even more distinctly indicated by the scriptures than 1914. I hope so. I hope so. 1914 wasn't right. In 1918, the Watchtower Organization says, we may be confidently expected in 1925 will mark the return of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the faithful prophets of old. See, here's the problem. And you can bring out your copy of the New World Translation. Again, I think if you want to effectively witness, get a copy of the New World Translation. I wouldn't do your devotions in it. But have a copy. Underline Matthew 24, 11. In their own version, this is how it reads. In their own version. I'm not taking this from the King James. This is their own version. Then many false prophets will rise up and mislead many. Hey, did you know Jesus said that many are going to rise up and lead people astray? Now, I'm sure you're like me. You might say to the Jehovah's Witness, you don't want to be deceived. Thankfully, God has given us a way to spot false prophets. He has? He has. Let's turn in your Bible Deuteronomy chapter 18. In their Bible, turn to it in the New World Translation because here's how it reads in the New World Translation. However, the prophet who presumes to speak in my name, a word that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. And in case you should say in your heart, how shall we know the word that Jehovah has not spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of Jehovah and the word does not occur or come true, That is the word that Jehovah did not speak. He then goes on to say, with presumptuousness, the prophet spoke it. You must not get frightened at him. And that word frightened means to trust or to give heed to. uh, Their own Bible tells you how to spot him. If he speaks and it doesn't come to pass, don't give heed to that prophet or that organization. Guess what? 1914, 1917, 1918, 1925, 1975, false prophecy after false prophecy after false prophecy after false prophecy. Finally, pray for them. Pray for them that their eyes would be opened to rem- and remember to be loving. Pray for them that their eyes would open to the truth and they would be set free from this organization. Friends, God does the saving. You plant the seeds. You pray and God brings the increase. But hopefully we can be equipped when we're in those situations to do what God is calling us to do.
Next week, we'll begin the countdown of the 15 questions that you guys have emailed in dealing with number two. I don't know why I started with number two, but (laughs) number two, if God is loving, why is there evil and suffering in the world? I think that question sometimes gets asked more than any other. It was number two on our list of questions. People get emailed in, but we will deal with that next week. Right now, while the high school kids and junior high kids are breaking up into groups in their study, we're going to spend the next 15 minutes just worshiping the Lord. And if you can stay, oh, I'd love you to stay. Because here's what's so important. I, I, I love going through these doctrines and learning what we're, you know, how do we explain what the Trinity is and how do we explain the deity of Jesus Christ? And again, I think it's good that we know these things. But friends, it basically takes us to the same place. God is so amazing. He's so much bigger than you and I are. So much bigger than what you and I are facing in our lives. And some of you need to hear that tonight. As the worship team comes back up, some of you need to hear tonight that God is bigger than the trial that you're facing. God is more vast than the person that's come against you. And we're going to take some time tonight to put, to, put, to put the doctrine aside in the sense of the head knowledge part of it and let it do what it was meant to do in our hearts, to give us an awe of our Lord and Savior. I really feel that some of you tonight need to get your eyes right back on Jesus. Right back on the one that has been God from eternity past and he will be God for eternity through. He knows what you're going through tonight. He knows what you're facing and he is all sufficient to deal with those things in your life tonight. Amen? Amen. Father, we just want to worship you this evening. We want to exalt you. We want to lift you up as our great king because there is no one like you. Lord, we don't understand totally how you can be three in one. We don't understand totally how you, Jesus, could be fully God and fully man. We don't understand how you know all the stars by name. But I know for me, I'm so glad that that's the God I worship so glad that we don't worship a statue that we formed with our own hands so glad that we don't pray to God of steel and metal who has eyes but can't see and ears but can't hear and a mouth but can't speak Lord you see our situations you hear our cries So, Lord, even as we worship you, would you speak into our hearts tonight what you want to say to us, what you want to whisper into our hearts tonight. God, I pray for anyone in this room that maybe doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. I pray tonight would be the night that they would commit their heart to you fully and completely. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.